0: CT Podcast listeners, Wade Wallace here, the founder of Cycling Tips. No, you haven't pressed play on the wrong podcast. This is just me promoting another offbeat cycling podcast that many of you, I feel, might be interested in. Over the past few years, I've taken great interest in the origin stories of iconic brands and personalities in the cycling industry. And Last year, I had the chance to create a podcast called From the Top. For those of you who want to hear the entrepreneurial journeys of the people in the sport and our industry, this is an episode that I really enjoy putting together, and it gives you a taste of what the series is about. This one is about the founding story of Zwift. These aren't sponsored, nor are they ads. They simply give you a peek behind the scenes and tell the remarkable stories of some of the brands you know and love. If you enjoyed this, I have many more you can find by searching from the top on your favorite podcasting service. If you like this, go over there and leave a rating and some feedback so that it helps other people discover it as well. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Now, to the show.
1: So, I'm doing this demo and I realize like as I as I hop off the bike and I'm sort of pointing at things on the screen, I look over and I see my heart rate's like 160. Like I'm nervous. It's almost like getting interviewed, right? I'll imagine I'm being interviewed, and essentially, it was like a real time graph of my heart rate on the screen. They're playing it cool, and I can't tell if they're looking at my heart rate. And I'm like trying to like switch the screens over because, you know, I don't know. It seems a little bit embarrassing. In the end, they're like, okay, this is kind of neat. They did a little test drive and then they flew away. Uh, and it was probably, I don't know, a week later or something. And they're like, let's, you know, let's do this. You want, we need you. You want in? Let's go. Let's do this. You need to quit your job.
0: From cyclingtips.com, this is From the Top, the podcast about the personalities, the founders, the entrepreneurs, and the passionate people who make up the sport of cycling and the stories behind the icons they've built. Indoor training has been around for as long as I can remember, but it was in 2014 when Zwift came along that it changed this market forever. It came into the world with bold ambitions reimagined the space and what it could become, and has grown the market to a size that nobody could have imagined. As far back as I can remember, the earliest pioneers in the indoor virtual world space were the likes of CompuTrainer and Tax. That would have been in the late 90s or early 2000s, but they never really delivered on the promise of making indoor training much more enjoyable. They can't be blamed for lack of vision or for not for trying, The technology wasn't even there yet at the time. Social networks didn't exist, multiplayer online games weren't around, broadband speeds were slow, and wireless protocols such as Ant Plus and Bluetooth Low Energy hadn't even been invented yet. But in 2010, when a gaming software developer in Southern California named John Mayfield began tinkering with his kinetic trainer and finding ways for it to communicate to a virtual world he had built himself, he had no idea how big this would become.
1: I really got into cycling when we were, my wife was pregnant and we were living in like a one bedroom condo and we, I I was convinced like we could just have the kid and stay in this one bedroom bedroom condo and pay cheaper rent and like save, <laughs> save money, right? This is great. Like, you know, we don't have to get a mortgage or anything, but uh, you know, she found a house and we ended up buying it. And about, I, I would say a hundred meters behind the house, there's this cycling trail here in uh in southern california that's like 30 miles long. It's just a bike trail. There's no cars, there's no driveways, there's no roads to cross. It's just literally continuous pavement for 30 miles. Um and I just saw like cyclists through the sort of trees off in the distance. Like what is that? So I went over, took a look and you know discovered this bike path um and we ended up buying bikes for me and my wife. And I remember haggling the, uh, I remember going to the bike shop and like $500 for a bike. Who's paying this kind of money for a bicycle? (laughs) I I think I talked the guy down to like 420 or 430 or something. I got, you know, got my deal. Right. And I would say, uh, you know, I went out there, did my ride. And I would say by like the third ride, I knew like, this is, this is what I'm going to be doing now for the, you know, foreseeable future. I love this, right? There's like freedom as, as getting, you know, I've been a computer programmer for as long as I can remember. And you're just sitting at a desk staring at a screen. And there was something about like being out in the, you know, away from screens, away from people. I'm just on this trail by myself. I'm not, was, I'd never got into the group rides. As odd as it seems, I'm an antisocial cyclist, right? What I like is my solitude. Uh, but anyway, I was hooked, and this is like probably February um, 2010,
0: relatively recently.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, what's weird is I lived in Austin, Texas during the whole Lance era, and like I didn't know who he was. Is that right? Couldn't couldn't have cared less about Lance Armstrong. than I mean, he like you know he probably lived 15 minutes from where I where I was, but didn't even give it a second thought. It was only until I found this this bike path that I went all in. I mean. Months later, I'm watching Tour de France and like, I don't know if it was that year or the next year, but I was one of the first people at Strava. Like I was deep into the, I had a stack of books read up on all the sort of training methods out there, wishing I could buy a power meter someday and probably by, I think it was probably going to be October of that year, I had convinced the wife that I needed a proper bike And, I, and my, I was ready, you know, skeptical, ready to buy a, fan, you know, what I call a fancy bike. What was that bike? I still have it. It's a Specialized Roubaix. It was one size too big for me because it was like they were trying to move this 61 centimeter frame. And I'm not the, <laughs> I'm more of a 58 or a 56, but I bought it because there was a deal, right? Trying to get that, get that deal again. That took me to the next level, right? I was I was already already on my four hundred dollar bike. I was doing century rides around uh, the wow. city, you know, all summer. Sort of like I wanted to do a century ride every every month or something. I was getting really into it, but the road bike was sort of like I'm signing up long term for this, right? It's a big investment. Was, I think it was two thousand dollars or something. Which again, I thought I was I thought I was crazy. I'm like two thousand dollars. I'm gonna get my miles out of this. And I probably put I probably put ten thousand miles on the bike, but I still couldn't believe I was like spending that much money on a bicycle. Like it seems ridiculous uh, at the time, and now it seems ridiculous the other way. Like seeing how expensive fancy bikes are. I mean, like ten plus grand for top end stuff these days. And um, anyway, got the bike, got deeper into cycling, and then daylight savings hit, and that made it. So I was maybe leave you know I was doing my rides during the day a bit but like I've got this new kid in the house and as my mileage goes up, my time on the bike is going up and the wife's satisfaction is going down.
0: Mm.
1: I'm getting, I'm starting to get the guilt trip of like, you know, you're always out riding your bicycle. Like you're a, a grown man with a kid and like you need to do, you know, do your parental duties, please. So I think it was probably November I went to I don't know REI or some shop here, and bought a Kirk Kinetic Trainer. It was a dumb trainer, right? Uh, A fluid trainer, but it on the side of the box had a little power curve. It's like oh, I could like I could probably use this to maybe I'll train like the pros, right? Like I had read about. Set it all up. Hopped on. Five minutes in, I'm like, this is horrible. <laughs> so I get off the bike. I literally pedaled for five minutes and got off. I'm like, okay, this isn't this isn't right. Like, let me Google. Like, there's there's some stuff I can do on the bike. I mean, surely this is a solved problem. Yeah. And it was the VHS tapes or the DVDs or like that was kind of it. Or there was Comp Trainer, but again, that's like that was the cost of the whole bike to buy a Compu Trainer back then. And and I work in the video game industry, so like I'm seeing the Trainer graphics, like. Eh.
0: So you were a video game programmer at the time.
1: At the time, I was doing um, PlayStation Portable games for Sony. Right. So okay. we did uh, like Ratchet and Clank PSP games, and I uh, also did a PS3 game, some Wii. My first games were on Nintendo 64, like back in the, the late 90s. Is that right? Um, so I've been doing games for that for all those years good time to mention it. Cause that's a, that's a key thing here, right? Like I discover there is nothing to do on this bike trainer aside from watch a video of some dude riding up a mountain, which that, that wasn't that appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And I've got this background in video games. Like maybe I can merge these two things I love. So, you know, I still had the Kirk kinetic box sitting there. Cause I had just unpacked it and I see that little graph. I'm like, I bet you I could write some software to sort of decode my speed and give me real-time power output on the screen and then i can uh start doing what i've been reading about in the was it racing and training with a power meter book like it's kind of like the bible for for power meter so i bought some electronics glued some wires to my bike you know i i'd done a little bit of microcontroller programming so i wrote a little firmware to like read the signal tell me how fast the wheel's going convert that into distance convert that into watts send it over to the computer and then i just had like a text program that just printed out my Watts. I was like, Oh, this is cool. I got, I got data now and I didn't spend, you know, I spent 200 bucks for this trainer. Now I've got live Watts, you know, as accurate as it, it's going to be, but good enough. I had also at this exact moment, I'd also been wanting to sort of learn some like Apple was picking up steam. So I wanted to learn like how to program on a Macintosh. Um, cause I've been, you know, a new PC and I knew video game consoles. So I started, a little graphics thing. And I plugged in my, my wattage code and, uh, wrote it in such a way that it'll run on Mac or PC and like, Oh, this is cool. So I'm scratching my programming itch, cycling itch, my video game itch. Like this is, this is great. How about your
0: parental duties? (laughs)
1: Uh, I feel well, so I, this, all this work is like 10 PM until 4 AM every day. And I was on night duty with the, with the newborn. Right. So, less than a year old, they just kind of like sleep or, yeah, or sit there. Right. They're not like crawling around and whatever they're sleeping 20 hours a day anyway. So I took the night shift essentially. And, uh, you know, half the time the kid's either, either down in the crib or he's up in some sort of chair up next to me, you know, while I'm coding at 2am and hopping on a bike, that's going nowhere (laughs) by December of that first year, I was I had modeled a 3D bicycle. I had, had a road up on the screen and I was riding around in a virtual world with power data. I started researching like, how do I save this? I was saving out fit files so we could upload them you know. I wanted like I wanted to track the stats, right? And I want to be able to upload it to all the websites that that are gonna care. And then I think in January, I actually built our first um my first little like steering control. I went under the front tire. So now I could steer. So I was. I built software now that could like train me with wattage, right. It had intervals and, and all the stuff, um, that the book told me I needed to be doing, put me in the right zones. Um, I kind of had an inkling that I wanted to race someday. So I had it like ranking me. Am I a cat two or a cat three or whatever, just on power. I mean, it's, it's just a ego stroke thing. Obviously I, I had no racing skills, but just on the like wattage tables, like where yeah. am I at? Right. I'm yeah. leveling up. I want to level up, you know, to a, fast cat four or a slow cat three, but just kind of building things as they came to me. Like what do I want to do? I'm riding on the bike. How do I feel? What's the next thing I want to build? At one point I converted it entirely. There was like a music video player mode. Okay. So you had to keep the interval power exactly right or the video would start to get fuzzy and corrupted and like the music would slow down. You know, so anyway I had it so I'd do my workouts and then the cooldowns were all video gaming because I had this steering controller I built. So I, it would then convert from like structured training on the road to now explore this world and like collect all the items in the forest. Oh yeah. You know, and it, and it would give me a time, you know, you have five minutes to cool down, like see how many coins you could collect, which turns out is a horrible way to cool down. Cause I'm like hammering <laughs> through, <laughs> hammering through the forest to try to get these coins. Right. It's just, it's, it's weird how little it takes to sort of get you motivated to, to pedal harder like you know i'd see i have four seconds left to get this last coin and i'm just hammering it means nothing right but it's like i want to get the thing and the steering really helped sort of stave off some more of that boredom when i'm not focused on the power Yeah, yeah right it was like if i'm just riding around it's fun to sort of explore so that was that was all that was built that first winter and i think in february 2011 i sort of I put up a little website that detailed sort of what i'd built um i'd reverse engineered ant plus at the time because they wanted like five grand to give you the format of ant plus i'm like eh, i'll just like look at the you know look at the data and figure out where heart rate is now it's a it's a pretty simple format
0: after the first year of building this indoor cycling game which didn't even have a name yet John put it aside for the spring and summer of 2011, and got back to riding his bike outside. Once the fall came around, he began building more, polishing up what he had, and began building on top of what he had already started.
1: I started building user interface, and like, maybe I can customize my bike, maybe I can do, you know, maybe changing the wheels makes your bike faster, or whatever. I was like, I wanted to give myself rewards for doing my workouts. So you were gamifying it at this point still? kind of yeah like you know part of it was i knew you know other people would want to customize their bike if this ever was a thing i was i think this is when i was first starting to think like maybe i'll just release this on the internet and like you know give it away for free right i'm not the right i'm not the um businessman persona i'm more of the product kind of guy so i thought you know i thought that would be cool Uh, Iterated it some more, started increasing, you know, improving the graphics, making it more something that maybe I could actually release. But I wouldn't say it moved a ton that second year. I mean, it was it's it's kind of like the beginning of a software project. You you make tons of headway. And then as you start doing like the 14th most important feature, the impact is less. Right. But you still got to do them.
0: After that second winter of building the foundations of Zwift, John decided to put what he had built out there on the popular triathlon forum called Slow Twitch. You can read that original post in our show notes, as well as what John had on his original website, which was called JMX Trainer Coach 0.5, AKA how to make riding on a trainer suck less. It's really quite amazing to go back and read knowing what we know now.
1: It was springtime, so I was done working for the year and just kind of like put it put it up just to, to get some feedback thinking, you know, maybe I could, you know, sell this thing for a little bit of money, right. you know, 50 bucks a pop and, you know, here's a little thing you could download. And the response on there was pretty, you know, it was more than I was expecting. I was expecting like 10 people to post like that's dumb, go outside kind of thing. (laughs) Cause you know, cyclists are, are tough guys. Right. Um, And cycling is serious business and it's not supposed to be a game. Right. So that's what I was expecting, but you know, it it was more of a mix. It was a, you know, a lot of positive responses. I think it was more positive. I had also posted on a cycling forum. uh, I think it's Bikeforums.net, which was where I mostly posted, but I was starting to want to get into triathlons. I'd been reading a lot of slow twitch and like those guys see more, I don't know about the numbers. They take it seriously in the way that I take it seriously, which is just like, I'm interested in the performance and not so much the tradition of cycling and, you know, it's just different perspective, I guess. So anyway, those guys really latched on. I'm like, okay, this is my, maybe this is my home for a while. It's, it's so Twitch
0: people saying I'd buy that too.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, the response was pretty good. So at that point I I was like, okay, I probably have something. Let me, you know, I, I kept the threads alive. I was posting about them more and I started to get emails from entrepreneurs saying like, Hey, like let's work together and maybe we can, turn this into something. And four or five of those emails came through and I thought like, these guys are like, I, I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling it with these people.
0: What were the offers like? Were they just like nothing in it for you? Is that why you
1: weren't feeling it? I, it seemed It like- seemed like there was nobody really serious or I didn't like the tone or it was kind of like you do all the work and then I'll, all. don't know. I wasn't, it, it's just like, you just get a bad vibe, right? I kind of ignored them.
0: All right, now we're at the point of the story when John's life takes a significant turn and intersects with a man named Eric Min. It was at the end of 2013 when Eric contacted John after doing some research on a similar business idea he had been thinking about. For context, here's a bit about Eric's upbringing.
2: Well, we're a family of five, three boys. And back uh, back in uh, South Korea in the 70s, Um, you had to give up four years of your life to military service. You know, no, we didn't uh, take the boat. We took a 747 Pan Am airline and uh, flew over. My first bike was a a beautiful orange bike with a banana seat, and, you know, the, you know, the, the long uh, bars. But that was, you know, I, I must've been eight years old and I didn't rediscover the bike until I moved to the suburbs of New York. And then I bumped into a, a cycling club called the Sleepy Hollow Cycling Club in Tarrytown, North Terrytown, New York. There were three brothers there who ran the club and they really took me under their wings and taught me a lot about training and, and took me to races I and... Mean, and that just became you know, my sport.
0: Eric excelled at bike racing and even attended an Olympic training camp in Colorado when he was young. He admits that he didn't quite have what it took to become a pro cyclist. So he took a more traditional route and studied in university to get a career in finance. And well, he definitely excelled at that. He became a VP at J.P. Morgan on Wall Street which gave him the insight and experience to create a successful competing business dealing with trading systems for the commodities market served over the internet. It was called Saconet, and took him to London where he settled in and lived until this day.
2: So I got back into shape um, right after I got married. Um, And so this is when I started to do indoor cycling during the summer months to stay in shape because getting out was so challenging for me.
0: Eric had similar time restrictions as John and many others, and literally just missed the convenience of what he had when he was riding in New York. He went down the indoor training rabbit hole, trying all the different products out there, which none of them he was really satisfied with.
2: When I got back into indoor cycling, um, I realized not much had changed. So I went, I literally went out and bought everything. Not because I wanted to start something called Zwift, just because I wanted, you know, content to keep me engaged and motivated. And I had CompuTrainer, you know, back in the day. They had this, you know, 3D uh, simulator, we call it that. But it, it never delivered on the promise of like creating this virtual world for cycling. People have been talking about this for like decades.
0: At the end of the day, Eric admits that it was just a personal need for himself that made him start to look into how indoor training could be more social and be more engaging simply because that's what his life needed at the time.
2: What I missed in uh, New York City was that sense of convenience and community and competition and training. And it was so convenient because I lived on the Upper West Side, which is two blocks from Central Park, a 10 kilometer circuit that I can have access to. In two minutes, I can be over there. So when we left New York to go to Germany, I lost all of that. And then in, when I, then a year later moved to the UK, I still didn't have any of that. So what I simply wanted to do, was a selfish thing. I wanted to recreate that convenience, that sense of community, that sense of training and competition. But
0: as we heard before, This wasn't Eric's first venture, and he had to tick some boxes in order for him to convince himself that this was a scalable business.
2: Oh, is it a a real business? Is it doable? Do you think people will buy it? Do we have all the resources to execute on that. And, you know, is this the right trend, right? So we had to check all those boxes. And is it global? Is it internet? Is this, you know, and, you know, to be sustainable, it should be a subscription business. My last business as a kind of, was a subscription business. And I know the value of a subscription business. <laughs> so the checklist was only done after like, yes, this would solve my problem.
0: So coming full circle to where we left off with John, Eric, along with his former business partner, Alaric Murren, did some searching around the market to see what was out there, and they found John's project on the Slow Twitch forum.
2: Often, Alric is the one who keeps you grounded, so he's my counterbalance. Otherwise, I think I'd probably go off the rails and and dream, dream too big. <laughs> um, but so that was that was a great moment, um, and uh, we realized like neither of us know how to you know build video games. We don't we didn't know anything about the video game industry, but clearly the experience had to use a video game because it would give us the most flexibility in creating that dynamic interactive experience that we call virtual worlds now. My first task was, all right, I have to find someone who could be our developer. And I literally Google for, you know, I forgot exactly what I searched for, but like John Mayfield's project was the first thing that came up. And I'm like, oh, what is this? And and it was, def- it was like a home project. And I forgot what he called it, but it was a beautiful 3D, you know, uh, uh, cycling game, and it wasn't really working, but it had, I thought, the beginnings of something great. Most importantly, I didn't think too much about the tech, but I wanted John, so I reached out to him. You know, uh, we exchanged a couple of emails, and um, and he seemed interested. But I think I got the impression that a lot of people like pinged him because I think he posted on Slow Twitch. But I think I was the only one who actually showed up on his doorstep. I mean, I flew from london to to l a and knocked on his front door <laughs> to to meet him in person and get a demo and go for a ride. and um, and so he took me probably more seriously than all the other inbound, you know interests that he got from others who say, "Hey, let's start a business together."
0: Now, near the end of two thousand and thirteen, Eric made his way across the pond to John's home in Orange, California to take a look at what he's built.
1: Next thing I know, he's knocking on my door, you know, asking to come check off the thing. So I, you know, comes to my house uh, in Orange, California, go up to my little home office with my bike set up. And I was all set up, you know, I'd already gotten dressed in my cycling clothes. So I could sort of demo the software at the heart rate strap on. So I'd show him the data works and everything. So I'm doing this demo and I realized like, as I as I hop off the bike and I'm sort of pointing at things on the screen. I look over and I see my heart rate's like 160. Like I'm nervous. It's almost like being interviewed, right? Now imagine I'm being interviewed and essentially it's like a real time graph of my heart rate on the screen. And I'm looking, and uh, Eric brought a guy named Scott uh, Barger with them, and they're both sitting there, and like they're playing it cool. And I can't tell if they're looking at my heart rate, and I'm like trying to like switch the screens over because you know I don't know. It seems a little bit embarrassing, but in the end they're like okay this is kind of neat they did a little test drive i think they used the steering controller tried it out maybe collected some coins and stuff but they didn't really everybody was pretty calm and then we went on a bike ride i think we went up mount baldy uh, which is one of the the main climbs for a lot of uh, southern california here did a little bit of that and then they flew away and what did you think Uh, you know i thought like okay those those guys are pretty cool. Pretty nice. Seemed to know what they were doing. Seemed serious, serious enough to fly out here and like, check it out. Uh, and it was probably, I don't know, a week later or something. And they're like, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's, I think we should form a company. You know, do you, are you, you want, we need you, you want in, let's go, let's do this. You need to quit your job. Was that expected? I don't, I wouldn't say it was expected at that point. I think I'm naturally pessimistic. Uh So I just assume like, okay, well, you know, nothing will probably happen from that. Like, you know who's really gonna like put that kind of money into like some random project and you know they came and saw for an hour right like what got you over the line with that well so i call you know we t- eric and i talked again and he's just he can sell you on a dream yeah, that's one of his skills right that's probably something that any sort of uh, entrepreneur or CEO needs is to like convince people that what you're about to do is doable and the right thing to do.
0: Eric liked John and what he built, and he knew he needed him to take this to the next level.
2: You're not going to find many um, like John who had the 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 skill set to build an engine from scratch. I mean, he the the engine that we have is the engine that he built over seven years at another company that we, which we re, we acquired mm-hmm. um so he had that technical skill set as a graphics programmer plus he's a he's a cyclist and a runner and so having that combination and and john's a, a really nice guy he's a special guy he's a nice guy and you know uh and frankly i didn't have like a number two or a number three <laughs> i had i only looked at john <laughs> Uh, but after that meeting, that trip, that one day, I, I I put a proposal in front of him, which I thought he couldn't refuse. And within two weeks, he had joined you know, a company. He dropped his other job and came to, to Zwift to be one of the co-founders.
0: Now, we can start to see the fundamental ingredients of Zwift are starting to take shape by two unlikely people coming together. Eric, a savvy entrepreneur who's been a lifelong cyclist. And John, a technical whiz who had already built the basics of what Eric had wanted. The two other co founders in the background were Scott Barger and Alaric Marin. Here's John again about his initial expectations of the partnership.
1: You know, I don't know what his original expectations were, but when he told me he thought we could have, you know, 50,000 users paying for the product someday, like I was like, eh, <laughs> you know, I don't know, probably, <laughs> probably, not, probably not, but like, whatever. And then, to push me across the line, I think he's like, he's like, look, if we shut down within the first 12 months, like I'll, you know, we'll make sure the company pays the salary. Cause like, I was kind of, you know, paycheck to paycheck a little bit there at the start. So. But a family, um, not cause I don't, you know, video games pay well, but I wouldn't say I was the most responsible person or something. Right. And we had a mortgage and whatever, a new kid. So like paycheck to paycheck an exaggeration, but it, to like quit a job I loved, was highly risky to me. Yeah. So that took the risk Guys, like, you know, we're not going to fail in the, in the first 12 months, but if we do like it's in the contract that, you know, you'll be fine. Right. We're not gonna, you know, I'll give you time to like, go find your job again. Mm. So he, he was convinced, right. He knew that was never going to be a clause that got activated and he convinced me. And uh, yeah, I think January of 2014, the company was, was created and, that started sort of phase two, I would say, of Swift, which is the main. You know, sort of that's when the company was founded. That's when we we really started to grow.
0: What was day one like? Was it a, a list of what the roadmap entailed? Did you guys get together and talk about that? How, what was what was the step from there?
1: Yeah, day one, uh, Scott, Alaric, and Eric all flew to Southern California, and I left. My job was my last day at my job Friday at 6 p.m. and I drove to an Airbnb where they were all waiting. Wow! <laughs> uh, and like literally, I had my commute between two jobs, it was like one hour <laughs> between leaving my old job and starting uh, Swift. Um, but the first night we started getting to know each other, right? I hadn't really met Alaric in person. Uh, everybody's super nice, everybody's smart. It was I was more and more convinced each moment that like this is the right this is the right group of people to do this. You know, we probably had some dinner and some beers or whatever. But the next day, it was all down to business. It was like let's start brainstorming what we're going to do. You know, we're putting sticky notes up on the wall. Like, what about this or what? You know, what about uh, cycling gyms or what about running or what about you know what about whatever? Yeah, anything you can think of. So
0: still very, there wasn't a, this is what we're doing. This was still very visionary. What are we going to do type of thing? eh?
1: The general idea was online cycling where you could race other people. Right. Okay. Right. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a brand new idea or anything. We just wanted to do it more like massively multiplayer, not 16 people in a race or whatever this could be thousands I would say after that first weekend, the, one of the biggest main questions we had was, "Is cycling even the right sport?" Which yeah. is weird. Like we got to get, we, you mm. know, we demoed this thing as a bike uh, piece of software, and then like after the first weekend, my first task was actually convert my prototype to a running product. Yeah, wow. And try it out. So that's what I that's what I did that first week. After we sort of scattered back to our houses. I converted my software to read a, a Garmin foot pod. and then I, I think I got a Microsoft Surface or something, some sort of Windows-based tablet. And I was running around my neighborhood with a tablet in front of my face because I don't have treadmill. So I'm like running around trying to like see how good this is. I'm like, eh, this doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I sent videos to the other partners and gave them my impressions and like. Uh, I think soft, I think uh, cycling is where it's at. Plus treadmills are huge. How many people have treadmills at home? Like, let's, it, it seemed like we all agreed, like cycling was the the way to go. And that was, you know, that was when we started looking for offices in Southern California. Scott, w- Scott actually moved from London to, uh, I think Santa Monica area, uh, for this opportunity. So we halfway between where I live and where he lives is Long Beach, California, which, also happened to have pretty cheap um, office space. So that was where we ended up with our headquarters.
0: That's quite the commitment, isn't it? Like for everybody to surround themselves around you versus, all oh, right, we've, you know, you come to London or wherever.
1: Well, the the premise was like, this is a video game product and there's tons of video game development here in California, right? Whether okay. it's the Bay Area or, or Southern California. So we thought like they'll probably be fine. Yeah. As it turns out, like getting people at the start is really difficult, right? I mean, it's, you've got video game people working on call of duty or grand theft auto or big name franchises. Like are they really going to leave and come work on some cycling thing. Like, you know, the answer is the answer was definitely no, they were not. And they did not. <laughs> so it was hard to scale in those early days. I mean, how uh,
0: did you convince people?
1: Quality of life was one of the big things. The the video game industry is sort of notoriously bad for hours, right? They don't, you know, it's called crunch, right? Everybody has to crunch. The game is due out before Christmas. So those months leading up to sort of Thanksgiving time, you're just, some places will have you working, you know, 16 hours a day.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: There's also the aspect where maybe you're working on Call of Duty and you're like blowing people up with grenades and stuff in your game and like, or you could feel better Mm. about maybe working on a fitness product that's also games, but you're making people healthier and you're not just, it's not violent. There's a couple of angles we had and, and I feel strongly about both of those. I don't, I don't think I'd want to work on like Grand Theft Auto or something.
0: So if you're thinking what I'm thinking, this begs the question of how these guys afforded to pay for this, to get this off the ground. As we've gone through, this isn't Eric's first rodeo, and he knew this side of the business.
2: My partner and I, we had made enough money from our last business that we could fund this. Like, so we seeded the business, and, you know, and of course, we needed to build an MVP that we can then sell to investors. So I had done the whole investor thing once before. So now I I do it a second time. Uh, So it took us from March. So we set up shop in January, but we didn't get the office set up in in Long Beach till March, beginning of March. Yeah, 2014. Um, And we started hiring people for for Long Beach. Scott Barger, one of our co-founders who's with me in London, I asked him to move to California to help set up shop. Because I was going to stay in the UK. Alaric is in New York. And then we're setting our head, setting up our headquarters in, in California, um, but we put a small team together in in um, in March, and the plan was well, let's get to an MVP that we can then show to investors and then raise money in the summertime. And so yeah, it, we I think I pitched to two hundred investors, mostly friends, and then friends of friends and family and a hundred of them invested. So we're planning to raise about 3 million, but we raised 7 million instead. How do you
0: even value a business when there's zero sales and get $7 million? And how, how does that even work at that point when it's just a minimum viable product?
2: It was, I think it's, it's interesting. So there's something that I've learned over time, but I, I told my friends, this company's worth $20 million. I just came <laughs> up with that number. <laughs> Made up that number but I think some people just like, are you crazy? Other people like, okay, well, Eric thinks this is a big idea. And that's why he's saying it's worth 20.
0: So if you give 20 million, you know, you give almost a third of the company at that point to them. Is that as simple as that? Right.
2: It's it's as simple as that, Uh, less than that, but uh, yeah, yeah. About a third. Exactly.
0: Do you wish now you said a billion?
2: <laughs> yeah, well I, I think i think uh, my i think my co-founders with thought i was crazy to say it was 20 million dollars <laughs> and and they you know i'm glad we stuck with 20 because that's really helped us to protect the dilution of the business yeah right over- yeah yeah interesting because um that seven million only lasted us about 15 months and then i had to go out on the road again and raise another 10. But that another 10 was at a hundred million dollar valuation.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Velo Club. Cycling Tips is a membership program that allows us to produce independent content that's not driven by clicks, advertorials, page views, and all the other things that can make online content a race to the bottom. Because of our members, they enable us to create content with only our audience in mind and keeps it free for everybody. If you like this and you want to see it continue, we would love to welcome you as a member. There are many benefits in joining too. You can find out more at cyclingtips.com slash signup. Now back to the show. So the name Zwift had been settled on by now and there's not really much of a story behind it. It was done through an agency and the beta version was available in late 2014. I discovered Zwift in that time and I have to admit the barrier to entry was significant. It worked on a laptop, you needed an ant plus key, because laptops didn't really have Bluetooth at the time. You needed to do it in a place with Wi-Fi, which back sheds and basements sometimes don't really have that, and tethering with your phone wasn't what it is today. And personally I felt like a hobbyist just trying to set it up and get it working, and to be honest, I didn't really see the vision. Not like they did. It was maybe just a better compu trainer to me. But john wasn't worried
1: i wasn't worried about the technology working so much as as is more about what you described the barrier to entry is huge mm. i mean you know you gotta gotta figure out what all the pieces are that you need at the you know during the beta launch like it was only windows and i think it might have been only kicker and Compy trainer or something like we were you even had to have a specific graphics card i think day one Or, you know, maybe it was the NVIDIA brand. So
0: I was even later than that then.
1: Yeah, like we were, you know, we rolled it out pretty controlled, but the barrier to entry is more of a business problem. From a technical standpoint, we were confident what we built, you know, it is beta, whatever, like we're going to learn. We were excited about getting it out there, having people try it on their devices and their computers and, and, uh, you know, start working on it, start making it better. Again, I'm the pessimist of the group. So like... I would typically try to counterbalance Eric, who's the strong optimist. so yeah, I you know, again, I thought there's are really fifty thousand people that want to jump through all these hoops and hook up all these wires and figure out all the stuff they gotta buy just to pedal this uh, this bike. It, you know, as it turns out, like it seems like it was such a game changer for people riding indoors that it was worth jumping through those hoops, and there was more people than I thought. were willing to do so and maybe they had maybe some of them had their friends come over and get them set up or whatever but that community was there to really help people out i mean it wasn't us having to do all the customer support it was facebook groups from other passionate swifters helping figure out what you know what you need and like you know my mate lives down the street and he'll come over and like help sort you out like it was it was an amazing community um especially at the start i mean it still is but when you have a group of like 5,000 early adopters, they're really really drinking the Kool-Aid at the beginning and they love what's going on.
0: After the beta launch, Eric and a small crew went on roadshows around the globe showing people what the vision of Zwift was and what it could do.
2: It was fun. Um, it gave me an opportunity to to reconnect with the industry, um, you know. And I think there were enough people who were really open minded about Zwift, whether it's the media, um, whether it was uh, bike brands like Fausto Pinarello was one of the first bike brands that wanted to be part of Zwift. Um, you know, of course, all the trainer manufacturers. Um, yeah, so I think people didn't really know what Zwift could be, but they were they were at the same time they were afraid of not being part of it Mm. you know (laughs) because it was just so out there you know rafa what we did the big splashy launch at rafa in three different cities at the same time london new york san francisco looking back i don't know what the hell i was thinking (laughs) but that's how ambitious we were about like let's connect the three locations all through zwift and have a launch party exactly at the same time
0: (laughs) It feels like yesterday that Zwift was launched, but the functionality was basic compared to what it is now. This is John describing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had an island. I don't think we were calling it Jarvis Island then, um, but it was maybe five kilometer loop on a little island and you know, had some different, I wrote some code to make a road. Like we didn't have any tools to lay down roads or anything for the artist yet. So the whole world was actually generated through like math. Um, so the road was like a, a math equation and all the trees were placed just sort of randomly. Um, I think we'd hard coded some buildings and a little log cabin and stuff with the, with the guy playing a banjo, um, up there. But for the most part, it was just like, we didn't have any staff. So I just wrote some code to make a random world and it didn't have workout mode. I don't think the original release had leaderboards. It was just like hop in and ride. And there's, you know, you're just riding one direction. There's no turning around or anything. And it was multiplayer. And it was multiplayer day one, you log in, you see whoever else is logged in. That was the core experience.
0: That was the heartbeat.
1: Yeah. So people love chasing down the the person in front of them or the, you know, trying to escape the person behind them or setting new, um, eventually like one of the first features we did launch was the, the, the timing arch thing. So people could then see like, okay, cool. I shaved off a half a second or I'm the fastest person in the world right now. Um, I think we started flipping the direction of the world every few days. So you could ride like groundbreaking. You can now ride counterclockwise around the island instead of (laughs) just (laughs) clockwise. But it was, everybody changed that one day. It wasn't like you could choose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was like Tuesday's reverse day.
0: What was your thinking about, um, the reality of, of, um, I guess the visuals, was it always like a let's make this imaginary and keep it imaginary? Or was there ever any uh, debate on whether you want to do more real worlds? What was the thinking behind that?
1: Um, we thought, why be bound by like the limits of the real world, why we can make anything? Why don't we make the best roads for cyclists? Mm. So I think at the start we knew we definitely wanted made up roads in a made up land. And we also wanted the graphics to not be hyper realistic. I mean, we want our trees to look slightly cartoony and our grass to look slightly cartoony. We're not going for photo We want a little bit of a style to it. Uh, But that was one of the main complaints at the start was like, you know, okay, y'all built this road, but like, what about Alp Duez? Yeah. And when you got three miles of road built total in the whole product, like the last thing you want to do is go add Alp Duez. But I could not. You know, it, it was a, it was actually one of our first debates within the company. It's like, you know, Eric is a a longtime cyclist, right? And he's knows the story of Alpe d'Huez and how iconic it is. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's just some climb, like I've seen it in the Tour de France once or something. But like, I, it doesn't have that it factor to me. And i i ender—I—I I see that all these people want it, but at the same time, we have three miles of road are they really going to want to go uphill at five miles an hour or seven miles an hour for an hour? Like, is that where we're at? It doesn't feel like it It feels like we need tons more flat roads first and we'll get to that when we get to it. Like we need to have the sort of, um, the dinner before we can have the dessert, right? Like let's build the main thing first. Uh, and you know, of course, eventually we did add it once we had that sort of critical mass of roads where people could do smaller climbs and flat rides and whatever. Now there's this, this out, uh, out to out uh, to Wes map or section that they can go do, and you know people do it once a month or something. We built that at the beginning; it had been a disaster.
0: After the beta launch, which was free for users, Zwift started charging for the service and began making revenue
2: so we we launched our closed beta in october of 2014 um in the first week we had like 13,000 people sign up for the beta we're like okay there's oh, a there's right. a interest here yeah, yeah so um and we decided that we would keep it uh we were going to charge a lot earlier than we had planned but we weren't ready so we decided we're going to we're going to have a beta for a whole week, another year build it out And that's when I realized, okay, I have to raise more money. So that's when we went out and raised more, another 10 million. Yeah. It took us, you know, let's say close to two years to turn it into a, you know, a, a business that you can start charging, um, which isn't too bad for any software business. Cause if my last business, you know, we, you know, I think we were, we were developing for two years before we got our first $5,000 check, you know what I mean? You're, you're burning through a lot just to get to that point.
0: Up until this point, Zwift relied on the hardware manufacturers such as Wahoo and Tax for the smart trainers. They had to be hardware agnostic and basically be Switzerland to this segment of the industry. However, in late 2019, that changed when Zwift announced their ambitions to start building their own hardware. Unfortunately, the combination of coinciding with a pandemic resulting in supply chain disruptions, material shortages, and perhaps underestimating the specialty of hardware manufacturing has put them behind. Eric explains.
2: Well, the microchips is the biggest issue with supply chain. Um, Mm. And, you know, we have the auto industry chasing the same components
1: Mm. as
2: we are. Um so it's uh it's a it's just a problem for for everyone and um it's causing delays for everyone including including us but it doesn't change our strategy. Our we believe that we have to be manufacturing hardware in order to grow our business. It's not to take business away from our our partners. I just don't think they'll make enough. That's the problem. <laughs> and so Uh, it's just going, we're just trying to grow the pie. And so it's going to take as long as it takes, uh, supply chain, logistics costs, all of this is uh, a real thorn in our, in our business plan. But, um, you know, it's the world that we live in at the moment. And, um, you know, there's not much we can do about it other than just, uh, persevere and, and work as hard as we can to, to get the products that, you know, we have in mind to, to market, but, you know, it's it's uh it's definitely taking longer than we we expected.
0: How do you um balance this tightrope of I mean, you're big, you're powerful, and it becoming this frenemy type of situation where they see you as an emerging competitor to something that you really work together on? And I'm talking about the hardware manufacturers. How do you balance that tightrope and yeah. continue?
2: It's a it's a good question. I think the model that we should reference is like, you know, Android. Mm-hmm. You know, Android got started first, worked with Samsung and LG to create the, the ecosystem, the mobile phones. And then LG, and then Google decided to make their own phone. Mm. You know, and um, and it's uh, it's a reference product for them, right? But you know, they app Android or Google absolutely needs Samsung and all the others to continue to manufacture, otherwise, they're just not going to get enough Android phones out there. So think of think of that as a as a as a model for us. You know, we want to we want to help augment the supply that we think we need to grow the market, right? Um, and we also at the same time want to set a reference for our partners to force them to not force, encourage them to innovate.
0: I imagine it's a difficult tightrope for Zwift to balance. The cycling industry isn't known for moving fast. Not many of you see funding and work on the aggressive timelines that Zwift would need to work on. I asked Eric if this has ever been a challenge for them.
2: no, it's I mean apart from our partners' hardware um we're not really um, tied too much with with you know the cycling brands. I mean we work with you know all of the major brands in cycling um, and it's more around brand brand partnership, but I think the future of 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 the world that we're creating i see you know the biggest brands and even the smallest brands having a presence on Zwift a virtual presence where and i think over time that link between the virtual and the real world is you should be able to flow in and out very seamlessly from a from a uh you know from a commerce perspective so uh, it, it's still kind of out there and in the future and probably things at uh, an area that most of our partners can't get their head around but i see that as the future of of how you know we could be bringing a lot of those brands into the space of of swift yeah yeah and the do commerce inside our space
0: um it's kind of interesting watching from the outside the the consolidation that's going on with you know wahoo buying sufferfest tax uh, garmin buying tax. Um, you know if you got you know, it's an ecosystem type play, it looks like. and and do you think smaller players will be able to play in that ecosystem when you guys get hardware and there's three fairly big uh, players out there, or how how do you think it will look in the future for that indoor market that has now been defined um, that wasn't there ten years ago?
2: Well, I think you know we only care about three d worlds. So if you want to do something else, then that doesn't, that's not really part of what we're trying to build. Mm. So whether it's fast or, you know, some of these other worlds, which are um, you know, videos, uh recorded videos, that's just not what we offer. Um, but I think, you know, as a hardware partner who may be offering, you know, choices to their customers, Zwift could be just one, one of the choices. I think it'll um uh, I'm not. I I would like to see more people innovating within our our platform, um, and I think part of that is that we just we're not making it particularly easy for partners to do that. But as I said earlier, you know the future of these virtual worlds is you know you need to be able to build an economy. You need to be able to you know create things. You need to be able to create things that you can own um, indefinitely, right. It doesn't disappear. You can, you know, the, the people have asked, like, can I buy real estate on Zwift? Like maybe in the future that that is a real possibility. People have asked that. Yeah. People have asked that, that. Right. I think, think it's the higher the Hilton said they would pay to have their hotel in our Richmond map. Right. So people are starting to understand like the importance of having presence in a highly, you know, uh, t- with a t- highly targeted audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, yeah, Yeah. we're getting into the metaverse stuff here. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. In you, uh, eighteen months ago, COVID hit March 2020. What immediate effect did that have to the business? Was that a huge stress to it, or were you not prepared for that, but prepared um, for that type of growth? What What happened
2: then? No one was really prepared for that to happen. Um, But we were well positioned to handle it. And what happened was that we basically um, had to change our priorities. And our priority was like we need to make sure that the system stays up to handle all the onboarding that we need to do. I mean, we just saw a huge rush of people coming in. And these are people who wouldn't have considered indoor cycling, but were forced to do that because training was important being connected with one another was important. And we saw a huge influx, um, you know, and particularly in the lockdown countries of, of Western Europe. Um, and many of them stayed after, you know, they were able to get back outside. Um, so it was, a, it was I, you know, I'm happy that we were there to provide a service that I thought was very important for them during a period where they just couldn't get out of their, leave their home. They couldn't ride their bikes, forget about it. They couldn't leave, like, you know, very far from their home. So the idea that they can train and compete with others around the world, uh, and the comf- confines of their home was an important service that we we could offer. Um, and, uh, yeah, did that change our business? Yeah, absolutely. It doubled our business. Um, and so that was a very important moment for us.
0: Did it change the direction of the business or does it just accelerate the the targets?
2: no um in some ways it actually slowed us down because we were so s- focused on servicing our existing customers so our product roadmap had to had to be delayed um i i mean you know we, when you have when you're doubling the business in a short period of time it's like it's all hands on deck to make sure uh that uh, you know customers are served the other thing that we did do at the same time was to um uh, host the virtual tour de france an opportunity we just couldn't You know, say no to. Oh, yeah. So that also was a huge opportunity moment for us. um, And just to get our brand out there, the TV coverage that comes with it. um, And that, of course, impacted other priorities that we had planned. Um, but the knock-on effect, the upside of that is that, you know, we got to then do something with the 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 virtual Olympic series, right, the, the uh, IOC. Um, it helped us to secure the world championships, uh, uh, you know, last year. And so these are all the, you know, those are all the bets that we took that gives us the ability to have those conversations with some of the biggest sporting bodies in the world. Because we demonstrated that we could, you know, have all these events virtually. The athletes were, you know, the Tour de France, men and women, virtually broadcasted, um, and we didn't, we didn't have any issues. So that was an important moment. And on on the back of that, we also did our Series C. So, you know, <laughs> which and the funding is important to keep the business going. So. A lot of balls in the air, but, we, it, you know, none of them were dropped, really, um, except for us having to delay our roadmap. You know, I've, I know that our, some of our core customers are frustrated by that, but it's because we have the funding that we can do those other things. constant awesome balancing act there.
0: At the beginning of 2020, we saw the first signs of Zwift possibly faltering, albeit very quietly, as everyone's attention was turned to the pandemic. Layoffs of many employees was a surprise, especially senior execs, which signified some intentions and perhaps a correction within the company. This included their head of partnerships, who they let go as a commitment to their hardware focus, since they wouldn't need those partnerships anymore. Their head of e-comm was also let go as they wouldn't be selling trainers anymore. Also, their head of running and head of eSports, which was a massive ambition for them, was also let go. All of this was as they were closing their $450 million funding round, which they needed to signify their clarity and direction. I asked Zwift for comment on this statement, and they say it's incorrect. They say that third-party hardware remains a focus for them, and the changes are made to restructure the business to support continued growth in the software business. You can read that full statement in our show notes. You might be wondering why this is even worth mentioning, which will probably be seen only as a minor speed bump in Zwift's overall journey. I'm not bringing this up to throw shade on Zwift, but if we're documenting Zwift's story, this is actually a pretty big challenge worth noting at this point in time. And I can understand why Eric probably wouldn't want to go too much into this with me, but from everything I've gathered from various people, it makes it sound like Zwift is backpedaling, so to speak. From multiple sources close to the situation, Zwift's attempt at manufacturing their own hardware is not going overly well at the present moment. This is a significant strategic step for Zwift, and at the time of publishing this podcast, that is, October of 2021, I'm told their hardware development program is currently in difficulty. That's not to say that it will fail, it's just that they need to figure it out, perhaps by acquisition. When you think about it, it's not hard to see why hardware would be incredibly important to Zwift and their growth ambitions. I mean, ease of onboarding and setup experience to compete with the likes of Peloton who are valued at over $30 billion. That would mean a lot to Zwift. Also, recurring revenue subscription is a wonderful business model, but it takes time to recoup those customer acquisition costs. A hardware sale on top of this brings forward these margins. But this is me editorializing, and again, you can read Zwift's statement that reaffirmed their dedication to working with hardware partners in our show notes. So when you did your Series C, I think it was what four hundred and fifty million, and it was reported that the valuation of the business was a billion dollars. How does how does that feel? Is that just such an abstract number that you can't comprehend it, or is that is that is that a fair valuation in your opinion? And
2: well, uh, so we never talked about the valuation. The company's worth way more than that, (laughs) but we just don't talk about it. Uh, But yeah, we're we're definitely a unicorn. Um, you know, I say this, uh, to others, you know, we just, we're just taking on a bigger mortgage, right? Right. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You still have
2: to, you know, there's their expectations, but I'm totally comfortable with the expectations of what that means. And, and, you know, I still think we're in the early years of building this business. This is going to take some time to build and I need to find investors who are going to be patient about uh, what we're building, what that, you know, what great looks like at the end of that rainbow and all the investment that we need to, to make to, to get there. But uh, um, if we want to really, you know, own the space, you have, to, you have to invest long-term and, and not really focus too much on the short-term things.
0: Up until the end of 2019, John was the gatekeeper of the Zwift codebase and was the head of product. But after speaking with him, I got the impression that what he loves to do is to create new things, just like he did when he was creating JMX Trainer Coach 0.5. What I admire about John is that he doesn't appear to suffer founder syndrome and knows how to get out of the way when it's time.
1: Yeah, basically through the end of 2019, I, was, you know, I led the product team. Um, Specifically, like I said, the game that you download and Swift companion, right? The, the apps you get. Um, but in 2020, like there was a big push to scale. And, you know, I was going to end up in like 40 hours of meetings a week. Um, like I wasn't, wasn't going to enjoy that aspect of scaling. We had started to get big enough where it was like a pain in the butt.
0: Was this a pandemic result or was it just natural organic
1: growth? No, this is still, this is still like maybe January, 2020. And we had hired a person that had a a very specific way that they wanted to help us scale our processes. Right. You need like, a, you need good processes in place. And I just like, I don't, it wasn't the way that I thought was right. It's not how I've seen video game companies work that make a product that like the, the designers know it's going to be fun or they think it's going to be fun. There's, there's intuition and there's passion built in. It's not about what process did they use to come up with how they design a game. It's like these three people are passionate about this game specifically and they're designing it and you know, this is how they're doing it. Now, I don't know if that idea really scales, right? So, you know, we hire, um, we hire an expert who comes in and, and is going to change how the organization works to help us get to that, that next scale. I don't know. It just, it didn't seem like it was right for me. I, I never actually wanted us to get this big. I mean, I just want to build something cool for people that like bikes, right? Like that's my concern. I don't, if that's only 3000 people or if it's 3 million people, whatever, right. As long as we're having fun doing what we're doing and building something cool, like that's, that's all I really care about. Um, but I, you know, I get that this is the real world and we got to like, you know, scale the company and, and uh make it bigger and better and and hopefully it allows us to actually make a better experience for more people and that's obviously the the end goal um so i transitioned over to like a place i can do r d work right like get back to those projects like the vr game or the this is where i built rowing was in this r d sort of role Um, just try things that aren't like our core thing like they can scale the teams up now to sort of take care of the cycling and i'll look at uh maybe like an impactful crash bug we have, or maybe a a new gameplay mode or whatever, right? More freedom to sort of operate like almost like a little mini startup within Zwift um, and try stuff out that's maybe years away. Are you able to get on
0: Zwift these days and enjoy it for what it is? Or do all you see are what you do? And how how, how do you experience it?
1: 14 weeks ago, I started training for a half marathon and I train exclusively on Zwift on a treadmill. Uh, And my half marathon is, uh, coming up soon six days from now, actually. And it'll be my first run outside all year. So that should be interesting, but I'm on there, you know, three times a week, uh, doing my running, I'll switch back to cycling, um, probably after that and start getting some miles on the bike.
0: So you can enjoy yourself on it and remove yourself from business. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Swift all the time, test accounts and test servers and stuff, but to ride it like a like a Zwifter. It's it's been a little while. I've mostly been trying to ride outside and rekindle the the passion for cycling, specifically after I get through with this run, um, run phase of my training. Cause I, you know, I still gotta train to be a, a triathlete someday. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you do you ever take the time to just sit back and look around and see what you've achieved and been an instrumental part of Is that happened yet? Or can you do that?
1: Yeah, I sure. Yeah. I've done that. It's a bit bittersweet. I really liked the, like I said, I'm really nostalgic for those early days where it was a small startup. And I, I really enjoy that. So I'm kind of like less impressed with how big we've gotten. Like that's not, again, that's not really the goal, but, that's not to say I don't sit back and be like, wow, I can't believe there's like, you know, I'll log in there's 27,000 people I can ride with right at that moment. Like, that's kind of cool. Right. And, uh, you know, I was at like a home repair store the other day and this lady had a little bike badge on her name tag. It was helping with, with some, I don't know, curtains or something, shades. And, uh, I was like, oh, cool, cool bike thing. And then, she was telling me about it. her friend just got injured. And so they started writing on this software and it turns out like she had, had ridden Zwift and she knew who I was. And like, it was weird. I'm there buying shades from and I was like, wait, are you John? Like, Oh my gosh, like, this is super cool. This has totally helped us through our recovery. And you know, our friend got hit by a car three months ago. And like, this is, this is how I found Zwift. And it was, it's kind of cool when you have those moments, you know, I used to have that in the video game industry when you go to, you know, the store and you'd see your game on the shelf and like, you know, you're kind of standing by it. Like, Hey, I, you know, I made this, this is probably as close to those moments as I get, or if I go to Kona. It's fun to interact and hear what people think about Swift or what, you know, what their next, what the, what their next feature request is. I kind of like hearing like what people want and what, you know, they care about so much. Like that's the one thing they want to tell me about is this one little feature, but I don't, again, I, never had the aspirations for it to be so big
0: i read on slow twitch something you put on in 2012 and i just want you to reflect on this statement i'm guessing no one i'm guessing no companies consider it financially viable to, or something to spend money on for graphics programmers everything that's come out so far is visually pretty poor anyway i'm just a dude with kids full-time job normal training load not much of a threat to a company with a bit of resources behind it there's there's multiple levels of irony there, you know, with <laughs> the financial viability, the I'm just a dude with kids, and also the you're not much threat to a company. How, how do you reflect on that with a little bit of hindsight, almost 10 years?
1: I mean, I told you I'm a pessimist, right? So <laughs> that's the pessimistic view of like, eh, it's probably not going to be anything. Um, but actually, 10 years later, I would say... To I would say to the dude right now with the uh, kids and maybe a little bit of free time to make something like you can still, you could still probably release some cool stuff for cycling or for running or for whatever. Like and it could be viable, especially now with the app store and stuff. I don't know. It, there's some neat, there's tons of things that we haven't built and we will never build that we've, that we've thought of. Like this would be cool for cycling indoors, but that's not, it's not going to be what Zwift is. It's not, it's not on our radar. It's, you know, somebody built it; it would be fine. And I kind of wish, like, that next person would, you know, build that next experience. And one day a week, I could see, you know, delivering newspapers on a trainer's, you know, whatever, right? Some little game. I think we even had a Halloween mode once in Swift where you played Paperboy and threw little um, objects, kind of like the old Paperboy video game uh, from the '90s. Like somebody could probably build that and make make a neat little experience. um, doesn't have to be a threat to like Peloton or or other big companies like, like, uh, like Swift, I suppose there's, there's room to innovate still there. So I, I I think I believed that back then I just didn't want to type (laughs) publicly pessimistic.
0: What John Eric and the other co-founders have done to date is nothing short of spectacular. They took a dull and disgruntled activity and have turned it around into a global phenomena among cyclists. They've done it in a way that's not trying to convince you to stop riding outdoors. And they've also been inclusive for gender, race, ability, and income, relatively speaking. They've literally redefined the indoor cycling space and have grown it to a size that nobody could have imagined. The story of Zwift, to me, feels like it's just begun. And after finding out more about their history behind the business, I hope you'll be watching them as keenly as I will be. This is Wade Wallace, and thanks for listening to From the Top.